We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 2 this morning as we continue our journey through the book of 2 Samuel with the theme being matters of the heart. And as we're coming through this book, this is what we're seeing, right? Just these heart issues that we all deal with, that we all on some level, I would say, wrestle with, right? Just matters, issues of the heart. After decades of simmering tensions, the northern and southern states um, over slavery, states' rights, and westward expansion, the Civil War of the United States broke out in 1861. And what a What a nasty war that was. When the dust cleared on that war, about 620,000 soldiers died or were killed in battle with millions being injured. It was the deadliest and costliest war ever fought on American soil. When we get to 2 Samuel chapter 2, what's on the horizon immediately is the official transition of power from Saul to David. And if there is one thing that Israel did not need at this time was war. They did not need that. That was the last thing that they needed. But as the narrative of 2 Samuel chapter 2 begins to unfold, that is precisely what happens. Civil war. And to our discredit, that scene... The scene that we're going to see unfold and play out in 2 Samuel chapter 2, that scene has repeated itself many times over, especially in Baptist churches. Has. Whether it be transitions of leadership or other difficult seasons in a church, believers can get to the place where they are downright uncivil toward one another. The Apostle Paul talks about this in the book of Galatians where he uses a very strong word like we can devour one another. We can be vicious. I mean, war can break out in a church. And I mean, there are some stories that will keep you up at night. Like things that actually happened in churches where believers it got so out of hand that, I mean, they were physically at war with one another in the church building, just a brawl. But on our way to examining the the grisly details of civil war that breaks out here in chapter two, God shows us how it could have been avoided, and he shows us how we can avoid it right now. He does. Because what we're going to find in these opening verses, these first seven verses, is what we're titling a recipe for unity. And I'm going to, I'm going to really challenge you. And I'm going to implore you. Would you take this recipe, right? Lori, sometimes we'll be out. We'll be someplace uh, having dinner with someone and they'll make something. And it's just outstanding. And, and Lori, she knows she's got to get the recipe. Like, hey, get that recipe. <laughs> like, I got to have this again. Right? So I want to give you, well, let's trust the word of God to give you 
a recipe for unity. As, as we walk through this, my heart is that you and I would say, oh man, that looks great. I got to have that. I got to have that. I'm going to take that with me. I've got to have that. So can, can I challenge you with that this morning? That you would say, yes, like this is one of those recipes that you don't lose, right? This is a recipe that works for marriage. It works for all of our relationships with one another. This is a must-have recipe. Verse 1 of chapter 2. And it came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said unto him, Go up. And David said, Whither shall I go up? And he said, Unto Hebron. Although... David has been anointed. We see that in 1 Samuel. Saul is dead. David does not act presumptuously here. He doesn't just begin to move and make decisions and try and make this thing happen. What does he do? He inquires of the Lord. This is the first of four mentions in the book of 2 Samuel that you're going to see this phrase, David inquired of the Lord. Now, let me just say, just to set it up in terms of where we're ultimately going, there's going to be another inquire that David does that we're going to have to talk about that is very different from this one. But we'll deal with that when we get there. But what we see here is that David, listen, was more interested in what God desired than what he desired. And this is a big moment. I mean, he knows it's just a, it's not a matter of if it's just when. When does he actually take the throne officially? And what we're going to see is that that was not the case with everybody. Not everybody was more interested in what God desired than what they desired, which is why we have this civil war here in 2 Samuel chapter 2. See, when our desires trump what God desires, that's when we have problems. That's when we have problems in marriage. That's when we have problems with one another. It's when God, what I want, what I desire matters more than anything, including what you desire. I don't care about what you desire, God. I only care about what I desire. Things are going to break down every time. So here's the first ingredient. Add God's will. In this recipe for unity, add God's will. Again, the will of God simply refers to what God desires. What is it that God desires? And David not only asked if he should go up to the cities of Judah. Notice, God says yes, and then he says what? What city? Where should I go? Hebron. He is waiting on God. He is concerned with what God desires. He wants to get this right. And that was very Christ-like. We see Christ exhibit the same thing in Matthew 26, 39, as he is on his way to the crucifixion. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Father, what is your will? What do you desire? Okay, then God, that's my desire. That's what I want. That's my will. 
Brothers and sisters, listen, we can become so selfish that we will overrule God's will with our will. We can. Right? I mean, from a, from a parental perspective, as we were in those early years of training up our children in the way they should go, you know what the biggest battle was? Where the, where, where the battle lines were? Their will. I want what I want, and I don't care if it's right or if it's wrong. I don't care if it's obedient or disobedient. That's the battle. <laughs> Their will, breaking that and helping them to bend that and shape that so that their will is God's will, right? And when we do that, here's what's happening. When we get to the place where we overrule the will of God with our will, here's where we're going. We're going to war with God and we are most certainly going to war with others. It's not a, it's not a matter of if, no, this is, that's what's going to happen every time. Look at verse 2. So David went up thither, and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelites, and his men that were with him that David bring up, every man, that, every man with his household, and they dwelt uh, in the cities of Hebron. So, sorry, I, I missed something there. David's two wives, and Abigail, sorry, Nabal's wife, the Carmelite, forgive me. Now, David's first wife, Michal, is not mentioned here because in 1 Samuel, we understand that, that King Saul took her and gave her to another man. But while we're here, and we're going to talk about this as we go, but a clear weakness is exposed very clearly. And this weakness is only going to manifest itself as we keep flipping the pages of 2 Samuel. Having spoken with a number of young men and men over the years, a lot of them, this is a weakness that is shared by every normal, heterosexual, male that I know, including this one. David was weak when it came to women. He was. Now, weakness in and of itself is not sin. What leads to sin, brothers, is when that weakness goes unguarded. That's when it leads to sin, which means you are making provision for lust to breathe and live in your life. You've given it residence. It's alive and well in your life. You haven't allowed the Lord to choke it out so that it doesn't trip you up. Listen, please, brothers, I beg you. Every man must be very real about what he cannot handle. You got to be very real about that. About what you cannot handle. Real. Very real. 
And Proverbs gives us wisdom on that, brothers. Proverbs 6.27. And the context here is lust. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? The takeaway, brothers, is don't play with fire. Do not play with fire. No. Listen, brothers, um, there are some things in our lives where the only response, the only way that we can deal with it is to run for our lives. Is to put feet to it. To say, that is scorching hot. That is an inferno. And if I just take a step in that direction, it is going to swallow me whole. You've got to put feet to it. What did Joseph do in the book of Genesis when he was tempted day by day? And when that temptation reached its peak, what did he do? He fled. He put feet to it. But David's wives and the men who were with him, they followed him up to Hebron. And this brings us to the second very critical ingredient in this recipe for unity, and that is compliance. David's men had suffered with him, and now they are about to reign with him. And so we see that millennial picture there. But his men and his wives followed him as he followed God. They weren't challenging. They weren't questioning. They weren't contesting. They weren't arguing about the direction, about the decision. His wives and his men followed him. And I think as parents, we can appreciate this, right? As parents, do we not appreciate compliance? We do very much. I know that I do. I would imagine that some of you had moments where you said something like this, just do what I said, please. What are you saying? Just comply. <laughs> please, just do what I said. First Corinthians 11 verse 1, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. If I can say this, on behalf of my family, Thank you very much. The love that you showed us at Christmas, what a blessing. Uh, we had a good time. I mean, I mean, it's one thing to get pajamas, but Michigan, I mean, you guys know how to speak to a brother's heart, man. I mean, go blue. And we put them on and got on the couch, and I think you saw the photo. I mean, talk about being vulnerable. You do what you have to do, right? Compliance. So exactly what it was. Let's just say that wasn't my decision. <laughs> but I did comply. Right? I, I mean, really, I appreciate that. But like parents, do you know what pastors appreciate? Compliance. They really do. And if pastors could be brutally honest, you can ask any MBT pastor, I think sometimes what they would say would be, would you please just follow? Just follow. Just comply. 
I think that's what they would say. Like David, once a pastor has heard from God, he is looking to now move in that direction, and he is looking to lead the people that God has entrusted to him in that direction. It's clear. He's heard from the Lord. He's got it. I see it. we got to go take that hill. Let's go. And what he wants, it's just compliance. Let me give you some principles for compliance. And, and just so I'm accountable, uh, these principles are very applicable to me as I follow my pastor, Sam Miles, as he follows the Lord. And so I am not excused from these things in my own life. But here's the first principle. Know the difference between sin and a decision that you would make differently. That's very important. And this is where we so easily find ourselves out of compliance. It's not that the direction or the decision is sin. It's not that. We're not talking about sin. We're talking about if it was your decision to make, you would make it differently. You've got to always keep those two in balance. So what, what happens is, is when we come to that place where, hey, there's a decision, there's a direction that I am being compelled to go in that I don't like or I don't agree with. Well, guess what many people do? They just don't follow. Or if they do follow, they make sure that you know I'm only following because I have to, not because I want to. Have you not tasted that in parenting? I'm doing what you've told me to do only because I have to, but I really don't want to do this. Do you appreciate that as a parent? No. Why? Because you see their heart. Next, respect that position shapes perspective. Position shapes per perspective. As a parent, I guarantee you, because of your position as a parent, your family looks different to you than it does to your children. Is that not correct? Of course. Your budget looks differently. Your home looks differently. The decisions that happen in your home, I guarantee you, there, there are probably some similarities, but I promise you there are things that you know, that you see about your family, about your home, about your life that your children simply cannot see. Position shapes perspective. Because of Sam's position, I recognize and I respect that MBT looks different to Sam than it does to me. I, I, I can see a lot of things that, that Sam sees, but there are some things that Sam sees. There have been times where Sam's made a decision and I'm sitting in a meeting and I'm like, Whew. oh man, my heart is just thumping. Like, Lord, that sounds really, really big. Okay, to only come around a month later and go, oh, yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. Why wouldn't we want to take that hill? 
Many of you have been in life fellowship for many years, and praise the Lord for that. No offense, but life fellowship looks different to me than anybody in this room. It has to. Next, learn when and how to question a decision. Unfortunately, when someone disagrees with a decision from the pastoral level, the pastor is rarely, if ever, the first person to hear about it. Conversations are had. Accusations are even made against him. And here's where it gets even more wonderful. He never gets to even speak. An accusation has been made, which, by the way, the Bible says... If you're going to make an accusation against a pastor, there's a process to do that. Number one, you got to have at least two witnesses. Which means if there is a process, he has to be a part of that process. But a decision has been made. Someone's unhappy about it or whatever is going on. And people get upset. And do not follow the proper channels in terms of how to deal with it. That's not how we challenge a decision. I want to believe that the men that I am privileged to lead in ministry know and feel free to question me. And I do believe at times they do. At least that's my perception. Here's the issue for me. And this is always going to be the issue for me. The issue is both frequency and tone. That's the issue for me. See, if we have to have a conference behind every decision that I make, guess what that means? We're not going to get anything done. We're not going anywhere. If I got to get Mark's permission before I do anything in life fellowship and make sure that Mark's good with it, Jonathan's good with it, we can just keep down the line. We're just not getting anything done. But the tone that we carry in those moments is as critical for me. With everything in my heart, and I think the men that I'm privileged to lead hear this from me, and they've heard it from me a lot. I say, it's a drum that I beat. Brothers, we can disagree, but we do not have to war. We don't have to war because we disagree. We just, and, and, and by the way, this is, this is also applicable in marriage, right? Just because we don't see eye to eye here because we're not on the same page, this is not an invitation to war. No, there's an issue that we need to address, but there's no one to attack. My, my tone and my body language and my spirit, it all needs to communicate that I want to have a discussion. And, and okay, let's, let's, let's talk it out. I will listen to you, you will listen to me. And we're working toward finding agreement. Finally, Be at peace with not being heard. Graciously, if you must be heard, 
every time you disagree, if you must be heard every time you have an opinion, you know what that means? That means you are far more interested in leading than you are following. Which means you can't be led. That's the truth. I'm going to say something. Um, that those who are leading you and those who are working you, who are working with you, want to say, but are probably afraid to say it to you. But if you are the type where you must be heard when you disagree or when you have an opinion, let me tell you what the people who are leading you and working with you, let me tell you what they want to say to you that they are afraid to say to you. You know what that is? They do not enjoy leading you, nor do they enjoy working with you. They don't. They actually, when it comes to that point where you have to get between the lines and work together, there's angst. There's a catch in their spirit. There's apprehension. There's, uh, maybe they won't show up this time. I'll, I'll, I'll be glad to do the extra work. I just don't enjoy working with them. One of the things that, that God has challenged me with over the years is when it comes to ministry, listen, there are only two kinds of people. There are people that we have to work with and there are people we get to work with. I want to be someone, hopefully, the guys who are side by side with me go, you know what? Man, I'm so thankful that I get to do this with you. Not. Uh. And those people who don't enjoy leading you and don't enjoy working with you, you know what they really want? They want you to either change your heart or they want you to find something else to do. They'll never tell you that. But that's exactly what they're thinking. And some of you right now in your heart, you're saying, amen, thank you. Be careful, because it might be you. <laughs> From a compliance perspective, direction is set weekly here. Uh, you heard it this morning. Mark gets up. Mark walks through all the small groups that are meeting this week. You know what that means? From a life fellowship perspective, small group Bible studies are important. That's direction. Are you in one? If you are in one, are you faithful to it? It's important. When we rally together, for a major outreach, whether it be Christmas or Easter or something else, do you get behind that? With everything that you have, that's direction. When someone gets up and says, hey, we're, we're going to Laramie, do you just tune that out? I don't have time for that. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> 
There's a church that is trying to be established. We just ordained that pastor a few weeks ago. We've how many trips have we taken to Laramie? Four, something like that. It's a it's it's a big deal. We talk about a marriage retreat. That's a big deal. Why? Well, my heart is that I want you to have a marriage that is glorifying to God and that is mutually edifying. I think it's important. That's direction. When when Keith sends out um, notifications about life prayer, oh, there's that again. No, that's that's important. That's direction. Whatever the direction is, as long as it is not contrary to God's word, why wouldn't we follow it? Compliance, right? Just comply. Brothers and sisters, our unity is compromised the moment we get out of compliance. The moment we say, you know what? Nope, I am breaking rank. I am not doing that. We can't have unity now. We continue, verse 4. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, that the men of Jabesh Gilead were they that buried Saul. So David was led to Judah because that was his home tribe. And of course, that is the same tribe that the Lord Jesus Christ would ultimately descend from. But their hearts would have been open to receive David. He was one of their very own. And this is the second anointing that we see in the life of David. There will be a third that we will encounter as we keep going in 2 Samuel. But he's not reigning over the whole nation at this point, only in Judah. But look at verse 4 again. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Would you notice that David did not show up and go, hey, I'm here. God told me to come to Judah so you can anoint me as your king. Had he said that, he would have been lying. Because when you look at verse 1, what did God tell him? God simply told him to go to Hebron and Judah. That's all. <laughs> That's all. This tells us that David was trusting God with what God had promised him. He did not believe that he had to make anything happen. No. Those men came to him. He didn't go to them. They came to him. They knew what God was doing. Here's the third ingredient. You ready? Add trust God. What an ingredient. Is this not a beautiful recipe? You might think, well, it's kind of corny, this whole recipe thing. But OK, I get it. I think it's a beautiful recipe. Trust God. Behind most church splits that I have 
witnessed. We're led by people who simply did not trust God. God wasn't big enough to deal with, to overcome whatever the challenges and issues were. So they had to take matters into their own hands and fix it. And this is how we get the mess that we're going to see here in 2 Samuel chapter 2. Listen, when you do not trust God, you will do that. You will take matters into your own hand and you're going to try and fix this, deal with it, whatever the case might be. That was not David's approach. He simply trusted God. I went through a season once. It was the most difficult ministry season I think I've ever been in. And I was convinced, and I blamed a man, because in my opinion, this man was keeping me from everything that I believe God had for me. And I blamed him for it. Man, God has gifted me this way. God has called me to do this. And and this guy just won't let me do it. In my flesh, I tried to correct that. And in doing so, I planted a seed for church split. I most certainly did. And I'm going to tell you, I'll never forget this. God gave me a warning of warnings. I can tell you exactly where I was. I can tell you exactly what I was reading. Deuteronomy chapter one. And God was very clear, son, if you take one more step in this direction, it is going to cost you severely. <laughs> By the grace of God, with a broken heart and tears in my eyes, I submit it. Brothers and sisters, if we really knew the disdain God has for division in his church, we would never have anything to do with it. If you only knew. If you only knew the righteous hatred that God has for division in his church, you would run for your life the other way. Read your Bible. You can see it. Remember Korah's Rebellion? <laughs> you want to know what God thinks about division? Go back and check that out in number 16. But here's what God taught me, and I'm so thankful. I'll never forget it. Here's what God taught me. Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord of hosts hath purposed, and who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? Here's what God taught me. No one can keep us from what God has planned for us. Amen. That guy wasn't holding me back. He, he, he wasn't keeping me from what God had. He, uh, no disrespect to him, but he's not that good. He's not that strong, and no one is. 
No one can keep you from what God has planned for you. So listen, when you feel like your pastors are overlooking you or keeping you from what God has for you, you know what you do? Just trust God. Don't try and make anything happen. Don't start a war. Just trust God. Whatever God has for you, it's going down. You can take it to the bank. That's what David did. He shows up and he can see God move these men to come to him and say, we recognize what God is doing. Praise the Lord. Okay, in the time I have left, finally, verse 5 through 7. And David sent messengers unto the men of Jabesh Gilead and said unto them, Blessed be ye of the Lord, that ye have showed this kindness unto your Lord, even unto Saul, and have buried him. And now the Lord show kindness and truth unto you. And I also will requite you this kindness, because ye have done this thing. Therefore now let your hands be strengthened, and be ye valiant. For your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah have anointed me king over them. So in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 11 in particular, King Saul had rescued the people of Jabesh Gilead from the Ammonites. So they were devoted to him even after he had died. And the efforts that they took in burying Saul and his sons, you see this in 1 Samuel 31, those efforts were both honorable and courageous. These men loved him and they were loyal, but David was seeking peace, not war. Can I, can I just, can I say this to you? Can I say it to me? We're always sending messages. We, we all, we're always doing that. We're always sending messages. The message you want to send to your husband the message you want to send to your wife, the message you want to send to your children, the message you want to send to the people in this room and this church is, you know what? I want peace. I loathe the idea of warring with you. I loathe it. It is sickening to me. If Lori and I are not agreed, if we're separated for five seconds, it feels like five million years. The last thing I want to do with Lori Morgan is war with her. The last thing I want to do with Jonathan Kindler is war with him. I know. Send that message. I want a relationship with you. I love you. I want us to be right. Us being right means more than me being right. Are you tracking with me, as Sam would say? 
Sadly, when this split happens, and we're going to see this next week, Jabez Gilead, they're not going to land with David or before him. Although his message was, I want peace, not war. Here's the fourth and very critical ingredient. Add, seek peace. Add that. Saul made David his enemy, but that did not mean that Jabesh Gilead had to make David their enemy. Especially when David was trying to seek peace with him. Listen, we must be careful to not allow the enemies of others to become our enemies. Did you get that? We must be so careful to not allow the enemies of others to become our enemies. Warren Wiersbe said this, very wise, how often in the history of the church have God's people allowed human affection and appreciation to overrule the will of God? Well said. I want to give you what I believe is probably one of the most sober cross-references that I think we're ever going to walk into in any particular study. And it shows us how our unity gets wrecked and how all-out war breaks out in a church. Proverbs 22, verses 24 and 25, make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man thou shalt not go, lest thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul. I've seen this movie too many times. Someone is doing well. They're doing really well. They have the joy of the Lord. They love their church. They're thankful for what God is doing in their church. They're just glad to be there. They look forward to Tuesday nights. They look forward to their Sunday fellowship. They look forward to main service. They look forward to mission focus and the all church retreat. Forget about it. I can't wait. It's just everything's going wonderful. They are a joy to lead in ministry. And then there's that day. There's that day where you notice they're starting to spend a lot of time with Mr. or Mrs. Disgruntled. The person who, as far as they're concerned, everything about Midtown is wrong. We're not doing anything right. Everything's messed up. The pastors have no clue what they're doing. The leaders have no clue what they're doing. And that person who had a countenance that radiated joy and glory to God and peace and love and kindness and friendship and goodness, that countenance now has been replaced with something 
that I would just describe as the countenance of death. They are 100% miserable now. Be careful who you walk with, right? It's a gut punch. Would you hear this as we wrap up? If a relationship is provoking us to seek war instead of peace, it must go. It must go. When you find that every time you spend time with this person, it turns into a full-blown gossip session where we're just attacking and slandering and talking trash on everybody. That is a relationship you don't need. Are you, are you with me? Not are you with me, are you with the word of God? You, you, you hear what I'm saying? Proverbs 13, 20 doesn't lie. You walk with wise men, you're gonna be what? Wise, a companion of fools shall be what? Destroyed. Can I give you a challenge for the week? Can I challenge you? I, I challenge you at the beginning to, 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 to get this recipe and to appreciate it, to hold on to it. Would you devote, would you devote one day this week, would you, can, can I still, or can I impose, is a better word, can I impose on one of your quiet times this week? Would you take your notes, this handout, and would you just spend a morning or evening or afternoon with God just meditating and praying over the recipe for unity? Deal? All right, so I'm going to take the lead. I'm going to do it tomorrow morning. All right? If, if you want to put in WhatsApp your day, go for it. I think that would be really fun. All right? Lord, I want to thank you so much for your word. I do believe that we've heard from you this morning. Now I do believe it's critical that you hear from us based on what we've heard from you. And let us do that without delay. In Jesus' name, amen.